Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. My guest today is Nico Lipko. He is a Ukrainian-Russian-born pilot who's currently living in Chamonix and also a mountain guide. And he reached out to me a few months ago with the subject line, the scariest flight of my life. And I thought, oh, interesting. I'll have to look into this. I've been doing some of this fear injury work with Jessica Love. He's working on a thesis on this. And so I read the email and found it quite interesting and got him on the show. And we recorded this the first time about a month ago now, and the recording didn't work on something wrong with my platform where I record all these podcasts. And so we we thought we had it and we didn't. So I had to reach out again and we did it again. And because we've done it twice, I've had quite a bit of time to think about this. I don't want to give it all away, but Nico's scary flight in Chamonix was on a quite a quite a boisterous day. He has been flying five years. He was flying at high end ENB and had a massive uh, frontal and really hard inflation. And on the reinflation, the A lines, A ones at the Mayons popped the one line, which leads to four lines, and so it left the his aircraft in a very unstable situation, which resulted in a toss. And so you'll hear all about that, but I'd like the takeaway here. And I think I, as you'll hear in the show, I try to remain pretty neutral. Nico has, is of the opinion that it's a fault with the wing and the fault to the manufacturer. And I read the manufacturer's uh, response to this, which I thought was pretty reasonable. And you know, these wings are load tested and that's that that's where a wing is qualified and we often put stress not often but there are times on really big days where we could put stress on it beyond the load testing and normally that works out sometimes it doesn't and I in the show again I point out a couple cases that I know personally where it didn't and I I, I just I don't I have to say I don't fully agree with Nico's takeaway here that this was a fault of the manufacturer. I don't think it was. I think if there was, you know, if this was a problem, we would see this kind of thing over and over again and it would be a recall. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to put out there that I think the takeaway here should be that, you know, we need to check our gear, that gear, gear failures can and thankfully not likely happen, but they can happen and it might happen. And we need to be thinking about what's our plan B and C and D when things go wrong. So it's a great story. It all worked out well. And, you know, from both of our perspective is it's all always just speculation. We can't prove one way or the other as the manufacturer can't as well. They took the wing back. They, they load tested the other side, it passed and I, again, I just I don't think this is necessarily leads to a manufacturing fault. I did reach out to Triple Seven to get their reply to this. You'll hear I read their response in this, and I haven't heard anything by the time we we put the show out. So I haven't gotten a response. If I do, then I'll put that out in a future show. But you be the judge. It's a fun story, and there's a lot of takeaways here. Enjoy. Cheers. Nico, 
take two, buddy, and we're going to try this again. Welcome to the cloud-based mayhem. The first recording, unfortunately, didn't work out, so we'll have a, well, plenty of practice this time around. But welcome to the show. And and you sent me an email quite a while back that said it was the scariest flight of my life. And I thought, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. You know, we've been I've been working with uh, Jessica Love. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's been a paraglider a long time and spent a bunch of time in beer. And she's done a lot of work uh, for her thesis on fear injuries. And it doesn't sound like you really had a fear injury from this one, but let's give the audience a little bit of background on on who you are. And uh, we'll we'll stay out of the politics, like you mentioned last time. But you're you're uh, you've got an interesting background, and now you're living in Chamonix, and you're crazy about flying. Uh, yeah. Hi, Gavin. Uh, thanks for having me uh, again. Uh, so uh, yeah, I learned a lot from uh, this uh, podcast, and I hope uh, the listeners will uh, learn something from this one as well. Uh, so uh, yeah, I. Uh, moved to France uh, six years ago, and uh, this is about the time when I started flying. So I started flying like one year after I moved here, and uh, it's it's kind of uh, started to become more and more uh, my uh, like well not the primary sport but one of the things I'm like super passionate about. Uh, at the beginning, it was just like uh, yeah, simple uh, like fly flying. I, I didn't even consider at some point I would uh, progress to anything uh, like uh, serious uh, pilot pilot wise, but uh, like every year I flew more and more. Last year it was two hundred fifty hours. Uh, so uh, I also started That's a healthy year. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was a nice one, and uh, also was like a nice uh, season in the Alps. Uh, so I flew some uh, big two uh, hundred k triangles. I also do um, climb and fly because uh, I'm a mountain guide. It's actually also like a career change because uh, before moving to France, I worked in software and hardware engineering for many years. Uh, and uh, at some point, I was just fed up with living in a big city with all the stress and uh, traffic and everything. So I moved to a tiny village in France to uh, yeah to follow my uh, passion for for the mountains. And uh, paragliding became one of the things that really complements everything nicely. Was it initially was the initial attraction just getting down because you're a mountain guide and spending a lot of time at altitude. I mean, that's kind of why the sport was invented back in the day. It was to basically get down. Was that, was that it? Was, I mean, when I first saw paragliding, I had no idea you could fly anywhere. I thought you just launched and you flew down. That's, I didn't understand that there, you could fly cross country. Was that kind of the same for you? Yeah, it's a good, good question because, you know, like at the very beginning, I had like no clue about flying. Even more than that, I was super terrified of flying in general. So, before I tried paragliding really? uh, for the first time, I think, yeah, it was 2012. Uh, I was so much afraid of like just taking a plane flight, you know, I would stay like glued to my uh, wow. seat for, for, for the whole time. And, you know, like when I went to Chile and Argentina, like I spent 13 hours just like staring at the window <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, no uh, sleep <laughs> on this uh, transatlantic <laughs> flight. And then in 2012, it was actually... August 19, 2012. I remember the day because it's one of those like very rare days 
when it was possible to top land on the summit of Mont Blanc. So I mm. booked uh, I booked a tandem flight in Chamonix, and uh, we just you know like flew around for half an hour, and it felt completely awesome. You know, like I wasn't scared. Like like after one minute into the flight, I had like zero fear, and it just felt so nice and supportive. You know, like like with the wind and everything, it it felt absolutely awesome. And after we landed, the tandem pilot he asked me like, "Do you want to go to the summit of Mont Blanc?" I, I, I thought he was joking, you know, like because like how, how it's possible? How I mean, like how can you start at two thousand meters and then like fly to four thousand eight hundred <laughs> meters? It, it it felt like 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 a joke, but he was seriously. He was like he was totally serious. So he was like, "You can pay me six hundred euros and we go there." I was like, "No way," and. I refused because I didn't have like uh, enough cash with me and I wasn't warm up for the occasion. But uh, yeah, it, it felt like really awesome. Like how could it be that with like this piece of, uh, you know, like lightweight fabric, you can actually like travel distances. So initially when I started, I thought like, well, it's just like so cool, you know, like to be just flying around, like flying, just th this, just the feeling of flying. This is what was mm -hmm. something attractive. And also when I started, so it took me uh, six years to actually book a course in Chamonix to learn how to fly on my own. So it was 2018, wow. uh, five years uh, ago, when I actually did the course. And uh, initially, I wasn't one of the best students in the group. And, you know, like the instructor, I, I could feel like the instructor's attitude, you know, like I wasn't one of the top guys because some people were just natural. They would just, you know go and try the reverse launch and it would be like all like like they were doing this for <laughs> for forever and for for me it was really hard to learn so uh it was completely uh, like something i didn't feel uh natural because for example i've been skiing for uh 30 years and uh paragliding was something that i learned from scratch and i was already like an adult you know uh so hmm. it yeah it, it just harder to learn when you're older yeah it's it's such such a difference because i have a daughter and she started skiing when she was less than two years old and you know like children they just pick up everything yeah, so quickly. natural yeah yeah so totally. for for me it was really hard but like after one year uh it, it was even less than than a year of flying one day i took off from chamonix and then i flew like 40 kilometers and came back and I didn't even plan that you know because I didn't have like uh, any instrument apart from a tiny acoustic vario so I only flew like uh, the terrain that I knew back then so no like uh, GPS nothing and uh, then I came back I was freezing cold and uh, yeah I was literally shivering because you know like after two hours it was end of March so at 3,000, like 200 meters, I, and I only mm. had like lightweight soft shell and very thin jacket. So yeah, I was freezing. And also like without, <laughs> without pod harness, it was just like open harness. I was flying, but uh, it felt so awesome because they were like glider planes flying below me. And I was like, wow, this is, I mean, like, yeah, it's, 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 it's yeah, it's crazy. And uh, mm. then I got hooked, you know, like, uh, into XC flying and then one day I saw it was February I think and I saw tracks which were going to 4,000 meter peak which is not not far from from the lift and I thought I could do it just like in a day 
And uh, yeah, I took my glider, which back then, like with all the kit was maybe 15 kilos. And I just climbed this one and uh, I flew down. And so this is how I got another passion is uh, like climbing stuff and then flying off. And since then I did uh, 24, uh, 4,000 meter uh, like takeoffs in Dalps. And uh, there, are, <laughs> there are more to go. So we have 80, 82, 4,000 meter peaks here. So uh, yeah, I have a bunch of uh, things to do. And since uh, last year, I started uh, doing tandems. So I did a tandem course and I just received my uh, tandem qualification uh, last month. So it's, it's another way to, to share, you know, like uh, some wonderful moments in the air. And is your, is your main source of income now the, the, the guiding with the climbing guiding, or is it still software engineering? Well, it's kind of in between because, you know, like with my uh, certification, I have to validate it in France and it's, uh, well, it's time consuming because France is a great country. Uh, I mean, it would have been just like a paradise if it wasn't so uh, bureaucratized. Like uh, there is a lot of paperwork <laughs> and everything is, is super slow. So uh, even though I received my uh, like guide license last year to validate it in France, yeah, it takes it takes time. So it's still like in this transition period. So in order to be able to work in France, I still need to get the French uh, equivalent. And uh, so my license is valid everywhere but France, <laughs> because uh, yeah, ah. this, this is this is this is how it works. So like in Italy, it's valid. In Switzerland, it's valid. Like everywhere else, yeah, it's valid. I mean, like it's international license. So yeah, yeah. But here, I need to right. <laughs> to get a special paper. And before we get to your incident, just a couple things I wanted to hit yeah. on. The first is you've done either quite a bit or some SIV with, with Fabian and, and Malin, correct? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Uh, so far I did five SIV courses. Yep. Five. Wow. That's great. So you're kind of doing one a year. What <laughs> one a year on average. Yeah. And this is what I plan to, to do. Great. Yeah. yeah. Good for you. And you said, you, you said we skipped over some, but you, you said you were in a big city and you were, you were kind of tired of it. You wanted to get out. What, where, where was that? Was that in Russia? Uh, yeah, that in was, Moscow that, that, that was in Moscow. That was in Moscow. So, uh, because Moscow. like, uh, okay. this is the take two and the listeners don't have uh, the idea about my background. So I'm yeah. like, uh, half Russian, half Ukrainian. So I have, uh, Ukrainian dad and Russian mom. And this is like, you know, another living proof why, this war is like, yeah, it, it's just nonsense and it should be, Crazy. should be stopped. Yeah. yeah. Do you, where are your parents now? Uh, my dad is in France and my mom, unfortunately, is uh, still in Russia. And I, we didn't touch on this last time yeah. at all, but what's, what's happening with her? Where, where, where is she? And is she, what's, what's her take on that? Give me, give us the 60 second. What's her take on this? Uh, you mean like uh, on the well on, on politics or well, how does she feel about what's going on? Yeah, not 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 so much even politics, but just I'd I'd love to you know I think people, you know, we only get what's what we see in the media, yeah. and we only get depending on what echo chamber you're in is the media we get. I, I'd just be curious from a local, from someone who lives there and is in Moscow, what what does your mom think about all of this? Mm. 
I can tell you that so far I know only two people who actually would support like this whole crazy stuff happening and none of my friends like no no one really supports that and especially you know like of course it comes to specific demographics and like education and uh yeah general like exposure you know like to uh to the the news i would say and like general background but uh yeah i would i would say that on average people don't support that i mean it's just yeah it's it shouldn't be happening you know like in 21st century we should have yeah. uh words like this it's it's, it's not normal for example on my mountain guide course uh i did it in uh, kyrgyzstan and uh most of the like uh, aspirants they were coming from like, they were from russia they were from ukraine uh kazakhstan uh, kyrgyzstan and like never ever we had any issues on like the nationalistic you know like (laughs) ground i would say i mean yeah i have so many friends and relatives on both sides and uh of course like no one wants this yeah it's obvious because you know like my my friends from uh ukraine uh those with whom i did uh guide uh, training uh now instead of you know like working in the mountains they are like at war this is this is plain wrong. Madness it is madness, crazy. Yeah. Well, I, I feel for your mom and your friends, and it must be a very tricky situation for you. You know, the, and as so many are, you know, both citizenships. It's you know, there there should be one one happy family up there. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would we, be great. We, we see it. So that would be great. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe someday. Well, let's talk about your incident. Uh, pretty it was scary <laughs> from, yeah. we've already talked about this we'll do it again but uh pretty scary incident with a pretty pretty happy outcome i would say but take us through what happened that day okay so uh it was uh last year almost exactly a year ago uh that year i changed my uh harness and i changed my glider so i had a brand new uh glider triple seven rook three but uh, we can talk later about it and uh, i think that was the flight number 13 so i took off from uh chamonix on a fairly strong day but nothing crazy i mean like the thermals were maybe five second five five meters per second so it was strong but uh not really like outrageously strong and uh, then, like one after uh, one hour into the flight, I uh, had a collapse. So I was like below two cumulus clouds, and I decided to move from one to another. There, there was obviously uh, like some 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 turbulence in between, like some some sink, and uh, I had uh, I had a collapse uh, which I uh, reopened, and so like well, I mean like. <laughs> pump the brakes like and on reopening like there was a very uh severe shock and like it felt immediately that something went wrong so like looking up i could see you know because like first i looked up i could see like the the collapse opening and so i thought okay fine like uh no problem like flying further but uh then like the glider didn't (laughs) didn't feel right so I look up again and I could see like uh, there is a line uh, in the air 
which is not attached to anything. And uh, turned out that uh, on this reinflation, the A1 line uh, snapped at uh, Mayong. So uh, it means that I lost four attachment points in the middle of the glider because the way the glider is designed, uh, so like the A1 line goes from Mayong, then it splits in two, and then it splits in two another time. So I lost four sure. attachment points. Uh, and at this point, like the glider became irrecoverable. So uh, it was going between um, stalling and uh, parachutal. So like hands up and it would go like parachutal, just like <laughs> falling down. And uh, if I touch a little bit of brake, it would stall immediately. So uh, my descent uh, was maybe around 10 meters per second, according to the GPS uh, track log. And, and any any rotation? Well, it was any spinning. It, it it was it was it was unstable, obviously, because you know, like it was like in the middle, but still, like to, it was the left side. So uh, mm. yeah, there was there was some spinning, but uh, I, I I tried nothing to... nothing violent. It was more it was more just coming down really fast. It, it, it wasn't it, it was coming it down. In... Obviously, it was hard to maintain the course. You know, like I could I, I yeah. tried to maintain the course as much as possible, but the problem, as I said, like the moment I touched the brakes, it would just like stall and like we would go into backflight. And so yeah, it was not not really like super stable because like even in backflight, like normally the gliders they are not like super stable. You can uh try to adjust your course Steer. in the yeah in like using the weight shift but uh still yeah it was kind of like a bit shaky and i was at uh, 800 meters above the ground so i decided uh, not to deploy uh my reserve immediately because uh thanks to fabian i <laughs> I remember this story that uh, Fabian told us during the first uh, SIV I did with uh, Flyo about the guy who deployed his uh, reserve at 2,000 meters in Annecy. And then with the valley wind and the strong thermals, he started uh, his XC flight under his reserve. So uh, he actually crossed a couple, couple valleys from what I remember and with uh, the rescue services following him on the ground, watching him in the air, and it must have been like very scary experience because you know like when you are under reserve and you have like zero control on like <laughs> what's happening it's yeah. uh yeah it's it's seriously scary so i remember this story and i decided that i would wait because also like in this area above uh, Pasi, there are many cliff faces so if you actually get dragged into one of these faces under your reserve yeah it's going to be ugly uh, and in about one minute, I lost uh, maybe 500 meters or so. And uh, then I decided it was time to, to throw. So I deployed the reserve, uh, killed uh, the glider as, as much as possible. And yeah, basically this was uh, time to prepare for impact. Because e even though I had the steerable uh, reserve, like steerable square, so it doesn't give you like much steerability, I would say, with only one and a half to one glide ratio. Um, and then I uh, hit uh, the ground really, really hard because initially when I just deployed, it was super thermic and I was actually going like up or staying at the same altitude just with the strength mm -hmm. of uh, thermals. So it's possible to see on my track log, I was 
in zeros for some time and then i started to go down like pretty quick like five to six meters per second and i was uh with a fairly good margin on my reserve like 100 kilos out of uh, 125 um so like so the, the, so the reserve was rated for 125 yeah yeah, and yeah. you're all up weight was 100 yeah, exactly, should, exactly yes. yeah so like like 20 to 25 percent okay. margin is like what's recommended by most SAV instructors sure and yeah. uh, unfortunately i couldn't really land on my uh feet and do plf because i was still in some rotation when uh, i was going down and i think this was coming from like thermic activity you know like because it was really thermic in this area and then later when i was uh on the ground i could hear like the thermals coming in and like the wind noise was really really strong so i guess it was just like mm. swirling effect of of the thermal that was putting me in some sort of like rotation and because side of the thermal or something or I, I I don't really think that it was like a lee side because you know like like the thermals. No, not actually, no, not lee side, but lee side of the thermal potentially. You know, I mean, you, you yeah, sound like you were in pretty sinky air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, around very thermic conditions. Yeah, that, that's that, that's exactly the case. And so I hit the ground like pretty hard, and unfortunately, it was with my back. Even though I managed to like to exit the pods, and I was in vertical position with the uh, uh, reserve attached to my shoulders, so like everything was was okay in terms of preparation for for the impact but it was just a bit uh not enough luck in terms of uh, the area where i landed it was fairly steep slope and also because i was in rotation i couldn't control how i land and that's how i landed on my back probably like the worst possible uh scenario mm. and i was really scared uh for my uh, limbs you know like yeah like the the, the first the first idea, oh no, I don't want to be paralyzed because, yeah, obviously, you know, like movement is uh, absolutely essential part of uh, everyone li everyone's <laughs> life. But yeah, for, for mountain guide, it's, it's even more essential. So uh, mm. I was uh, really scared, but luckily I could move uh, my, my legs, uh, I could move my hands. So that was okay. But of course, there was uh, like severe shock with like five to six meter per second uh, descent rate. And uh, another thing, as I was going down under my uh, reserve, why, why I actually say that it was like the scariest flight for like for two reasons. Because first of all, I had uh, ACL surgery just five months before that. So, you know, like with uh, five months post-op, post you are still not, not really solid, like to, to take any sort of uh, significant mm -hmm. impact. Uh, because you can re-injure the, the knee. And the second thing is because just two or three weeks before the accident, uh, I repacked uh, my reserve myself. And so I thought, okay, so if it doesn't work now, then I'm dead because there is no, no other option because like the glider is not flyable anymore. And uh, I only had one reserve, even though I had a harness with... Uh, two reserve compartments was like a brand new harness mm -hmm. i had only seven flights on it uh but i didn't install the second reserve just yet because i thought well okay it's like uh, still beginning of the season you know like it's nothing crazy but uh it's kind of hard to imagine that at some point your glider <laughs> will just break in the air especially a brand new one 
So um, mm. after I yeah, so after I impacted the ground, uh, I thought that I'm fine, and I actually called the rescue services straight away because uh, they might uh, have received like calls from like uh, some people uh, telling that there was a reserve deployment. So I called the, the rescue services. I told them that I was fine and uh, there is no need to rescue me. And then I called my friend uh, because, you know, as I, as I said, I was uh, five months uh, post-op. So I wasn't supposed to carry 20 kilo backpack uh, downhill. So I called my friend yeah. to come and uh, help me bring the pack down. And then I started to pack everything. And by the time I finished packing, I had very, very strong pain in my lower back and in my abdominals. And it was getting worse and worse. Mm. And so I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I, I hope, you know, like it's not like some sort of internal uh, injury. So I call, called the rescue services again and uh, I asked them what would they suggest. And so they put me on the line with the doctor. And the doctor started to ask uh, like multiple questions, like where the pain is, like localizing it, uh, like giving like the grade one to 10 and all this stuff. And then they told me like there is a risk of internal bleeding, like according to uh, my answers. And so they would rather come and pick me up and bring me to the hospital. So then the helicopter came again, like uh, heads off to uh, French rescue. Uh, yeah. I, I think these guys, they're, they're just amazing, you know, like, because they landed the helicopter in a tiny opening. I mean, like, it didn't land completely because it was steepish slow, but, uh, like, the rotor blades, they were, like, one and a half or two meters away from the trees. And it was such a thermic days, and, you know, like, because, and it was windy, and it's, it's crazy. Like, they, they, their skill is absolutely amazing. So thanks a lot to these guys. They brought me to the hospital, and there I did like a bunch of checks, spent there a few hours in an emergency room. And yeah, miraculously, nothing was uh, broken, just like severe shock. And uh, I had a lot of neck pain and lower back pain for the next few weeks. Mm. But mm. Uh, yeah, I had to rehab it for a bit, but nothing, nothing broken. Must have must have had some pretty serious internal bruising and stuff. That that stuff takes a long time to yeah to get yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. yeah, several things that strike me as is quite fortunate is just having this accident in Passy and not in you know a million other places in the world where it would sure. you wouldn't have had the helicopter option. And, and I mean, it is a quite a cliffy area there. I can see how you were hesitant to throw and. To, so you've had a year to think about this and a year to kind of unpack it all before we get into your thoughts on the, the glider itself, anything you've changed since this incident in terms of gear preparation, training, anything, I, I don't know. Is there anything you wish you would have known, uh, a year ago that you know now that would have potentially changed the outcome although the outcome in in many ways was very good but yeah. is there anything you would have done differently so yeah i i thought or about anything it. you do differently now yeah 
there are like some things that I changed and some things that I, I would say I would keep doing the way I did before because I think this is what saved my uh, bacon that day. Um, so uh, what I would uh, change from now on and like something that I started doing like a year ago, from now on, I would only fly the equipment of the top brands. I mean, like everyone decides what the top brand in paragliding is, but uh, I just think that you know, like some companies, they devote more attention to quality control than than the others, because even like the smaller companies, then some, they sometimes make outstanding products which are really good and which in certain categories can outperform the others. But uh, I think the quality control is just not the same, and like overall, you know, like amount of um, resources and uh, time spent for R and D, yeah, it's. Uh, something that finally uh, might affect the overall quality and safety of the product. Um, what I would uh, also do, I would say that I would try to minimize uh, flying without reserve. I mean, in some countries, uh, like flying without reserve is illegal. But here in France, like you can see this uh, fairly often, especially for those guys who do hike and fly or climb and fly, you know, like flying in string harness, uh, without reserve, uh, without a helmet. I definitely can't uh, endorse this sort of uh, flying, but at the same time for climb and fly projects, especially for like high altitudes, you know, like bringing a reserve is, is really cumbersome and uh, it takes not just like the weight because like modern reserve normally weights like around one one kilo if it's like a lightweight one but uh it's just like the volume and then with the volume you get like a bigger pack it's more difficult to move around so uh for climb and fly i i still uh do some projects without reserve but uh for hike and fly i would never even consider like doing that without reserve because uh for climb and fly in general, you just go somewhere in more or less calm conditions. So you don't do it like in crazy aerology, for example, with stronger winds or with like potential fern effect or like in the lee side, or you don't pull crazy maneuvers without, uh, without reserve. But uh, for general like hike and fly, I don't see a point why would someone save uh, one kilo of uh, weight yeah i don't i don't think i agree with you 100 percent. i don't think this is where we try to save weight uh, i mean it's 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 been an interesting kind of mental exercise for me even with the x alps with the four campaigns there you know my reserve is i don't have the 20 percent that you're talking about you know mm -hmm. i i am taking on automatically a lot more risk just by flying a reserve that's incredibly light and you know, I think my reserve is 980 grams. And so, you know, I'm going to be coming down and this is in good air. I'm going to be coming down at least five meters per second, if not six. And that's definitely where you can start snapping stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I think maybe that's justified in, in something where you're participating in a race like that, where, you know, you're talking metric tons over the course of the race that you're carrying and every little gram counts, but you've certainly got to be willing to accept the the trade-offs and 
that's a whole nother discussion with, with lightweight gear. You know, the, there, there are definitely a lot of compromises we're, we're accepting there. And I think we, we need to frame it that way that you're accepting more risk that when you're flying lightweight gear, it just, it's just, it's automatic, you know, it's physics, yeah, but sure. okay. Good stuff. I mean, I, why well, I really kind of liked your email and the reason i've wanted to talk about this is it just we don't hear about gear failures in our sport it's usually you know our heads that make the mistake you know flying conditions that are beyond our ability flying on bad days you know just not like senator croce says you know you fly the good days and so you're we're automatically you know by flying better equipment the reason the accidents have not gone down, like Russ Ogden says, is because it's, it allows us to fly in, in harsher and harsher conditions. We can fly in more wind, and wind is dangerous. You have lee and all this stuff. But in this case, it was a it was a gear failure, which is really interesting. I want to read 777's response. Uh, we received the glider with broken A1 line. The pilot stated that the line broke after heavy frontal collapse, flying in strong conditions. I mean, you've just confirm that. We examined the line and found the line has the right stitching according to our production files. The tread material is as per production files. We used the line on the other side and performed a line break test. The line broke exactly at the same value as the line sample certified Eric Turquoise, the test center in Switzerland. This complies with the theory that the materials and labor work have been done as it has been done on the certified line and load and shock test wing. Possible conclusions. The way the line broke shows that it has been a subject to a massive load higher than the one that is performed for the certification of the lines and wings for load and shock tests. This kind of abnormal thing can happen where the load distribution ends up on one rather than two single points in, the, in a moment in time. There is always a possibility of micro damage prior to the event, but this would be speculation at this point. So that'd be sand or salt water or something like that. Since the glider and its manufacturing is up to the point of the serial wing, 777 is not taking any further actions from here. How does that response sit with you well obviously i wasn't happy especially because i paid for brand new glider and the second reason is because that was my second triple seven glider i flew the night uh before that for like 100 something hours and i did my first uh bigger cross-country flights with uh with the night i flew my first 100k on the night uh and with rook yeah, I was really disappointed to see that because, you know, obviously after an accident like that, I would never ever have the trust to fly under this wing again. Even if it's like mm. up to specification or whatever, I just believe that uh, there is some design issue with this particular model. And the reason I believe that is because I saw uh, a guy on paragliding forum who did SIV, I think it was in Nancy, and uh, during practicing the frontal collapse, he had also A1 line snapping on his Rook 3. And in his case, it didn't break at the Mayo, it broke at the glider attachment. But anyway, you see, like there are two gliders of the same model, and they have some issue on frontal collapse. So to me, this is something to to think about and to start thinking that this is not coincidence so i think in mm. the case of and in this in this case triple seven should have 
uh, done more inspection and uh, more uh, more tests maybe. I mean, uh, just like flying, like maybe not not this particular wing because I actually think that like this particular wing is just exactly as as all other rooks out there. But some sort of uh, design like decision, maybe you know, like the combination of like the way uh, how they they split the lines and how the weight is distributed, combined with the fact that rook has extremely small openings on the leading edge. And this leads to uh, the shocker inflation at some point. I, I don't know. Because uh, I think I had like a smaller uh, collapse on the Rook uh, before before that, like maybe a week or two before that. And also it felt like the reopening was a little bit harsh, even though the collapse wasn't like a big one. And so mm. I, I, I don't know. It just feels that something is wrong with like particular design decision on this glider. I, I don't want to say like triple seven make uh, like uh, bad gliders because I actually think like they make a very nice very nice gliders uh, and I was very happy owner of like uh, Knight and I know many people who flew like uh, Queen and so on but uh, like this particular model I believe has some issue and they just don't want to acknowledge that because if they do they would have to recall all the gliders of this model on the market. And this might be like, yeah, really, really financially taxing on the company. So I, I want to be clear here for the listener that this is obviously all conjecture. Uh, we, you know, we don't have, you know, you or I don't have proof. We don't have backup. We don't have, uh, I, I literally know nothing about triple seven. So I, I, I can't even weigh in here. Uh, I, I'm curious if you, have did you talk about your incident with Malin and or Fabian and or Fabian? Did they have what was their opinion? Yeah, of course I talked with them because actually after this uh, accident I had SIV in uh, three weeks after the accident, so mm. I I bought uh, another glider and uh, did the uh, SIV just after that, which was really like confidence inspiring, you know, like and which was a great way to come back to flying. Um, and both Fabian and Malin, they told me that uh, they have never, ever encountered anything like that during the SIF courses that they run. Uh, yeah. Fabian, Fabian yeah. had uh, a similar um, accident on a prototype glider that he was uh, flying for one of the companies, but it's completely different, you know, like flying a prototype, which, yeah, it, this this can happen. I mean... Probably many people saw this uh, footage on Instagram or YouTube where the glider rips like uh, apart in uh, two pieces, one of the prototypes. Uh, mm -hmm. But when you have a serial wing and it breaks in flight, I, I have uh, never met uh, any SIV instructor who witnessed something like that. Because I, I talked, I think, with four or five uh, SIV instructors and also with other like uh, training instructors in uh, Chamonix and around Nancy. No one ever heard of anything like that. So this is something, well, I would say at least uh, suspicious. And also because we have this second case with the guy who had a uh, problem with the glider also during the frontal collapse. These, these things, they tell me that it's not, it's not a coincidence. Uh, so I can say that I have heard of this happening 
in two other scenarios. One is obviously the very famous case of Kiwi, our friend that that had his terrible misfortune and accident in Nevada. Now, Ozone did a study on that. He was on the Xeno and they they got the glider back. You know, it had been sitting in the desert for a few weeks. It was an older glider and he had relined it. And the conclusion was that the the knot you do at the at the fabric end at the wing end is it's very important how that girth hitch is and if you don't get that right it can compromise I, I believe they said in the study maybe 20 percent I've got Russ on the show next week I can confirm that but mm-hmm. you know when collectively you have you know typically this wouldn't be a big deal but collectively you know he he was flying in extraordinarily strong air and you know big guy big wing and you know, probably the theory is, we don't know for sure, but the theory is he took a huge hit and probably popped a line or maybe two lines and then zippered out, uh, you know, so, so, and then that, that just put more and more and more pressure on the succeeding lines and, and literally came, you know, unattached from the wing. Another case is a good friend of mine and neighbor, Nate Scales, was flying here. I think it's the only time he's thrown his reserve. I don't remember what year this was. It was, quite, it was about 10 years ago on the Ice Peak 6, uh, Niviak, which is a bomber wing. I, I, can, I mean, everybody can attest to that. And, you know, I don't know how many hours he had on it. I don't know anything about the 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 where the wing was at but it was in incredibly strong conditions you know 12 to 14 meter day <laughs> so it. exceedingly strong it, which is you know not typical even for here but but it, it does get that strong here it's a very very strong place to fly kind of like the owens out in california and you know he took a monster hit and and blew a whole bunch of his a lines in, in the reinflation so you know i think there are circumstances where, and I'm not saying this one way or the other with your wing, I think there are circumstances where we just put forces well beyond what a manufacturer can even build for. And, and then it's, you know, then it's a crapshoot. <laughs> uh, if, if, if it, if it's gonna, if it's gonna hold together or not. And so, you know, I think air turquoise obviously does their job and they do it very well. And, you know, load tests are EN certified and we have, we have all these things to test a glider, but I I would postulate that in this case, you may have taken a hit that is beyond, uh, you know, load testing certifications, you know, whether that's acceptable or not, I don't know. Uh, I, I just, I don't know enough about these things. What I do need to do is reach out to, triple seven and, and just get their, you know, further thoughts on this. Uh, I agree with you. The email seems a little, I would, I would have liked to know a little bit more than that. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I can't conjecture either, either way. I think really the, the, the lesson here is like you said, you know, flying gear that you're really comfortable with. I think the other thing that's you know something that I rarely do is really check my wing and you know this this has helped affirm for me that that's a necessary part of our you know procedures you and i spoke last time i i've had two instances about gear i would call massive failures that 
have been in my career that are my flying time that have been uh, both were, were really scary. One was a harness. I got a brand new harness. I won't name the manufacturer. And, you know, the shoulder straps uh, of the of many harnesses are the strap itself, you know, where the buckles go through is covered by uh, uh kind of a webbing, you know, stretchy material that, you know, so the, so dirt can't get in there and, and, you know, and, and the, the, the tabs come out of that where you can either loosen or tighten. Everybody listening knows what I'm talking about, but it's, it, I, I just happened out of pure sheer luck to grab the harness to go fly it the very first time and kind of yanked on the shoulder strap to pick it up off the ground. It was a, it was a seat harness, uh, acro harness. And, and so it was, you know, they're quite heavy at two reserves and everything. And I grabbed it and yanked it off the ground and the shoulder buckles weren't buckled. So they oh, were, bro. they were just tucked up into this, up, up into this webbing material, the stretchy webbing material, you know, it was brand new. It was delivered to me in the box like this. And that's not something we would ever check. You would obviously, you know, sit in the, in your simulator and adjust things, but an acro harness, you know, a seat harness, they're comfortable. I can adjust them in the air. I, I didn't need to do that. I just yeah. grab the harness and go fly it, you know, but it wasn't, if I had flown that harness, I could have just, you know, picked up, you know, tipped upside down and fallen straight out of the thing, uh, you know, cause they had just skipped that. They hadn't done the buckle. They hadn't done the shoulder straps together. So crazy. Uh, another one was one time I went to throw my reserve and ripped the handle right off the bag. And it was a bag again, that was, that was, you know, manufactured by X company. And, but the, the, it, it had looked, you know, on inspection and afterwards, because, you know, after I threw the handle off, I, you know, it's pretty hard to get a reserve out from under your butt that doesn't have a handle on it. It's, it, and it takes quite a bit of time. So it was, it was scary and it took quite a bit of time. And so, you know, we inspected it afterwards and the handle part that was sewn to the bag was literally, it, it had kind of three little stitches for, uh, with the kind of, uh, with the kind of, material that you would you would make a ch child's project out of i mean it wasn't even it was just a joke it was and i don't know how this got through and the 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 company i bought it from sent it back and the answer was we don't know how this happened this is <laughs> this is absurd i mean it, it wasn't it was you know so it was a whole reserve bag that again came with the harness that was almost a toy and so you know, these are uh, thankfully unusual, but to your point, I think that many companies are small and the testing procedures are, I, you know, I, I think, you know, most of this stuff is manufactured overseas and we, we just need to be mindful that mistakes, you know, they're made by humans and humans make mistakes and it's a good idea to inspect your gear. I mean, the handle thing is just not something I would ever think of. You would just, oh, okay. When you, pull the handle and it's going to, you know, but it just came off. It wasn't that I was overly aggressive, you know, that a handle should be sewn properly onto the reserve bag. Yeah. On the, on the same note, you know, like with the company of the, the same manufacturer, uh, when it got, uh, delivered, I had like, uh, uh, well, <laughs> at least 
in uh, one one of the uh, like uh, lines, and uh, yeah, it was just like one one of the uh, belts was twisted, and uh, the dealer who was delivering the harness, you know, like he was really ashamed because uh, he was like, oh wow, how how could they assemble it like this way, you know? And so mm. he he had to disassemble it uh like in front of me and uh put it back like normally i mean this was not like a safety issue because it was just like aesthetically sure. wrong but on the mm. same note when i received my tandem glider and after i did about 20 flights on it and also after i did like a course with uh like with the french uh with the french school uh so two instructors watched me uh, at the takeoff and uh, none of us noticed that on this uh, tandem glider, there were like B and C gallery lines. They were crossing each other. So it's, it's really crazy mm. because like uh, it's, it's very, very hard to see. And luckily, like during the, the flight phase, uh, there were no consequences. So the glider wasn't deformed. It was flying straight. But imagine like if there was sure. any sort of like in flight incident, it might have cre- created friction. And this friction would have uh, destroyed the the lines because like B's and C's they were crossing each other at at, at the gallery, so like uh, towards the glider. Yeah, and especially important with tandem gear, you know. Then you're then you got yeah. Else I I I, 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 I flew well. my daughter on this one, you know, like uh, like I did like <laughs> maybe 15, 15 flights with my daughter, and then I discovered that uh, yeah, <laughs> the gallery lines they cross. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Yeah, we need need to check our gear. Uh, any mental issues? Any kind of fear injury that came along with this? Anything you had to battle back from? Or it sounds like you got back on the horse with SIV a few weeks later. But it was was that any kind of an issue? You know, uh, I'm actually very happy that I uh, jumped on the horse, as you say, straight straight away. So actually, less than twenty four hours uh, after I was discharged from the hospital. I was at the takeoff. Uh, my wife brought me there. I still had my previous glider, which was also made by the Triple Seven, and uh, I did a flight uh, like for one hour. Mm, I mean, like not very mellow conditions. It was a spring day, uh, but uh, late in the evening, uh, and the cloud base was really high. So I basically jumped uh, into flying straight away after the accident. And I, I think for me, this was uh, the way to deal with the, with the fear injury. Obviously, every time now when I overfly the, the crash site, and this is like particularly known area for fairly rough thermal, uh, I always have this in the back of my mind, you know, like yeah, what, what happens if, uh, yeah, if I ever like have a collapse uh, like that big and if it uh i don't know i i think it's really really unlikely that i ever experience again the gear failure like this because uh, i think it's like one in a million or whatever so it's it's, it's yeah. extreme it's extremely rare and uh yeah this is again uh, why it, it feels very strange that uh, the same model had a similar breakdown like uh twice so, um, yeah, like uh, this uh, SIV was excellent way to uh, also to, to push myself. So I bought a new glider with the recommendation of uh, Malin. So <laughs> thanks to, to him. And uh, um, I had very nice uh, season uh, after that. 
So, you know, like I actually think now that uh, doing SIV on a new glider is probably the best, the best way to, to discover uh, how it behaves in uh, different uh, scenarios, uh, how it reacts. And uh, yeah, it makes you not just uh, safer, it makes you also much more confident. You you just trust mm-hmm. you you trust your gear you try to you trust your instincts, and in general this is something that I plan to do in the future. I want to keep doing SIV courses uh, once a year, uh, and yeah, hopefully also I can do it like uh, every time I uh, change equipment. That that's like the best way to discover it. Uh, because during my uh, SIV courses uh, in the past five years, I deployed my reserve twice, uh, so just just on purpose because I wanted to, and I think this is one of the reasons. Like in my accident, there were no severe outcomes because I knew exactly what to do. So first of all, I didn't deploy when I was very high. Uh, the second thing is that I I knew how to kill the glider. And finally, I knew how to deploy because actually like deploying your reserve, you know, like it's something that you should you should practice. Like even if you don't go to SIV for those listeners who like don't do this often or like don't do this at all, even though I highly recommend it, uh, you should just like deploy your reserve when you repack it. Like just like sit in your harness, mm-hmm. you know, like mount it and like throw it because uh, actually, yeah, especially like under G-Force, it might be not so obvious how uh how to do it especially like if you have like a heavier uh reserve and also like some harnesses they have different configurations you know like how far back you should reach and those who fly with just uh, one reserve yeah obviously like if you are in rotation scenario it might be extremely difficult to throw uh reserve uh if you are in auto rotation and uh in this in this scenario, like again, like uh, I just quote Malin here, he says that uh, 30 to 40 percent of uh, deployments, when you throw in auto rotation, they would go uh, in the glider. Yeah, straight. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's something that I plan to do from like since last year. Uh, I will always fly cross country, like big cross country flights. I always fly with uh, two reserves because it's just like another extra. <laughs> safety measure unfortunately not something that you would do you know like at hike and fly competitions which i also started doing but uh, yeah as you said you know like it's it comes to measuring every every gram of course like uh, if you do x alps it's even even more crazy because uh, <laughs> you are doing this for a very very long period of time and uh, yeah because you cover a lot of vertical and also flat distance but even like when you do one three days events it's something yeah i don't i don't think there's much of a good argument for not flying with two reserves uh, you know if you're if you if you're not then you're you're compromising seriously on safety i, I had a very very low incident before the last x alps here doing a bivy trip that i've talked about on the show several times but it was you know instantly into an auto rotation and i when the incident happened i was 100 meters off the deck so i was very low when it happened and my my immediate reaction was to throw the reserve. I didn't have any time to deal with this. So I didn't even think about it. I just started reaching for the reserve, but then I started winding up and I had my SIV instructors, you know, 
voice in my head and I was flying lightweight bivy gear. I only had one reserve, I only had one shot at this. And so I solved the auto rotation first and then flip then through because I was so afraid of that thing going into the wing and I would have been, you know, either severely hurt or dead had I. And so I was very happy for that SIV training, but it also, you know, it would have been that would have been a nice scenario to have two reserves, just huck and huck. And, and one of them was probably going to at least work out. But yeah, I, I, I think, again, it comes down to, you know, what's the risk profile that people are willing to accept. And this is a fascinating story that I'm really glad you shared with us because it's just not often we hear about gear stuff and the... I'm not sure I'm fully in your, in your court that it was, it was because of the gear. It might've just been, like you said, a, a, you know, a really big hit and, but it's, again, it's all speculation. We don't really know and let the listener decide. And I, I'm just happy that it worked out for you so well and that uh, you had a great season and, you know, yet again, reserves work. We got to use them. We just had a, a terrible incident down in the world cup from Brazil where there wasn't one and, the ending couldn't have been worse. So thanks for sharing your story, Nico. And I, I appreciate it. I'm going to reach out here to 777 and hopefully get their response before this goes live. But uh, thanks for sharing all this with me and, and, and our audience. And good luck to you, bud. Have some fun flights this year. And I hope to see you at Cloudbase. Thank you, Gavin. Have a nice season as well. And see you at the Cloudbase. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost so if you can support us financially all we've ever asked for is a buck a show and you can do that through a one-time donation through paypal or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out we put a new show out every two weeks so for example if you did a buck a show and every two weeks it'd be about 25 dollars a year so way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people, and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account, of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, All of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account. 
You should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support. And we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.